0: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border, and this time I'm sorry for the sound quality, because, well, through various shenanigans and wires and everything, I have attached my microphone to my phone. It's a sad story, because the AGMC, Her Majesty's computer, Byzantium, which had served me for long nine years, has finally given up the ghost. So I no longer have a computer, which also means that I don't have the backlog of my episodes anymore. Well, I have them on my webpage, but all of my scripts and written-up stuff, because, you know, I write scripts beforehand and I take notes during research and everything, yeah, that's kind of gone. This episode was meant to be about something completely else, but, well, as the episode that I had recorded is now dead before even getting to Annette, our beautiful editor, and amazing and talented, of course. By the way, she has COVID at this point, and everyone, please, wish her the best of health and recovery. But yeah, I just lost my computer, and I've asked both Linus Tech Tips and Paradox Interactive to maybe provide me with one, and some people are sending me some spare parts for it, but if you can, it is more important now than ever that you please, please, please become patrons of the show, or just go and throw some cash to your Witcher, Um, because, yeah, I don't have a computer anymore, and um, getting as good sound as I can from my mobile phone is a hard, brutal experience, and I hate doing it this way, but... Well, you'll be remembered, HMC Byzantium, we had many adventures, we hoisted the Soviet flag, and went to places hitherto unknown. But that's about, you know, the sad part of the story, because today I want to talk about, um, well, I wanted to talk about <laughs> Russian Alaska, but losing six hours of uh, recorded material is pain in the ass, and I'm going to have to redo everything. So now I'm going to talk about the last Soviet citizen and the space station Mir. Because that's a thing, you know, I remember I released an episode 12, I suppose, on the Soviet space race, but I talked about the Soviet Venus missions and about the cosmonauts that went out and, uh, you know, Gagarin and people like that, but I never really touched upon the space station Mir. And a lot of this material comes from the NASA site and a lot of Russian articles Combine it all together, but Mir is special for Russia, and for the Soviet Union as well, and a lot for Russia. That was one of the things that kind of held on, as it were, and was one of the truly kind of examples that even during the Perestroika, when it was built and launched in space, that it worked out. And we're going to be talking about the modules and everything, and yeah... We're going to have a bit of a conversation about the lost Soviet citizen in space. Really, a Soviet citizen, not a Russian, not anything. I hope you enjoyed this show, and please support me. And if you have a spare laptop or tower computer, please send it to me. Just just get in touch, theeasternborder at gmail.com, please. Or just donate some cash so that we can buy details or something. And if I get really lucky, which I kind of don't believe to, because, you know asking a Paradox Interactive Studios or, uh, for example, the very famous channel of Linus Tech Steps, even though they both could afford a new computer for me. That probably won't work out, so I need a new computer. But if it does, then your donations will go to some noble goal, such as, well, me donating to some charity of Ukrainian orphans, or maybe I'll fund my trip to Nagorno-Karabakh and do another waterboarding episode. Or maybe both. I don't know. Depends on, depends on the situation. But right now, right now, the Eastern Border Podcast needs your help. And I'm recording this on my phone through various wires and messed up things and everything. But hey, what can I do? So let's begin. Because the Mir, the space station Mir, truly became a legend in its own time, reflecting both the Soviet Union's past space glories and was a symbol of the Russia's space glories that, sadly, haven't really come to fruition. The Russian space station, Mir, endured 15 years in orbit, three times its planned lifetime. It a class of the Soviet Union that launched into space, it hosted scores of crew members and international visitors. It raised the first crop of wheat to be grown from seed to seed in outer space. It was the scene of joyous reunions, feats of courage, moments of panic, and months of grim determination. It suffered dangerous fires, a nearly catastrophic collision, and darkened periods of out-of-control tumbling. And one of the things that you should know about it is that it lasted for 15 years, even though during the Soviet era they really had only planned for five years, and if the Soviet Union had lost it, they would just brought it down, because it was never intended to serve in space for more than five years, they would have just built mir too. But the Russian government at the time decided that um, they need to pump in money and they just squeezed everything they could out of the space station. And it's not because of the awesomeness of the Russian space program, it's because of the lack of funding that had been there during the Soviet space program that it lasted as long as it did, because it was only intended as a test space station. Mir-2, which was already in production as the Soviet Union collapsed, was the real new space station that never came to fruition, obviously, but the Soviets, if they had lasted, they would have built a bigger and better space station, even bigger than the currently operating International Space Station. But Mir basically soared as a symbol of Russia's past space glories and her potential future as a leader in space exploration. And it serves as a stage, history's highest stage, for the first large-scale technical partnership between Russia and the United States after a half-century of mutual antagonism. Mir did all of that, and like most legends, was, well, controversial and somewhat paradoxical. At different times, and by different people, Mir was called both venerable and derelict. It was also called robust, accident-prone, and a marvel, but my favorite is the the kind of nickname some Soviet cosmonauts gave it to it, it was called a lemon. For Russians, and for Russian-speaking peoples, the very name Mir has a special meaning feeling in history. You know, everyone's read Vainai which is war and peace, but it could be interpreted otherwise. You see, Mir translates into English as um, both peace and world and village. But a single word translation misses its full significance, you see, because historically, after the Edict of Emancipation in 1861, when uh, the Serfdom was abolished in the Russian Empire, in Russia proper, we got it like about 10 years before that or something, The word Mir referred to a Russian peasant community that owned its own land. A system of, well, Kolhos replaced the Mir after the Russian Revolution of 1917, obviously, but uh, still, Mir does not just mean peace or world, it's also this village-centric thing, and it's important to note that. Because, you see, as with most legends, Mir was literally beyond the reach of most men and women, but it could be seen by many as a bright light arcing across the night sky. Mir undoubtedly provoked many thoughts around the globe about who we, as a human race, are, and where we are going. The cosmonauts and astronauts who were fortunate enough to travel to Mir were always impressed by its appearance. Regardless, Mir remained difficult to describe. An astronaut once called Mir a hundred-ton tinker toy, a term that recalled Mir's construction. adding modules over the years, and then sometimes rearranging them, the Russians had built the strangest, biggest structure ever seen in aerospace. Traveling at an average speed of 17,885 miles per hour, the space station orbited about 250 miles above the Earth. And I'm using miles, not kilometers here, because I'm using NASA data for this one, and even though they use metric for everything else, they have not provided me the metric equivalent, which is, well, yeah, NASA... Please do that. But then again, it's an abandoned NASA history homepage which no one looks at, So, and the article hasn't been updated even with Elon Musk stuff because they still speak as of using the space shuttle in present tense. So, well, you take what you can get, really. Mir was both great and graceful. An awkward thing and everything broken at the same time. In its outward appearance, Mir has also been compared to Dragonfly with its wings outstretched and to a hedgehog whose spines could pierce a spacewalker suit. NASA-4 Mir astronaut Jerry Leininger compared Mir to, quote, six school buses all hooked together. It was as if four of the buses were driven into a four-way intersection at the same time. They collided and became attached. All at the right angles to each other, these four buses made up the four Mir science modules. Priroda and Spectre were relatively new additions and looked at, each sporting shiny gold foil, bleached white solar blankets and unmaired thruster pods. Quantu and crystal, yeah, there showed the rage. Solar blankets were yellowed and looked as drab as a Moscow winter and were pockmarked with raggedy holes, the result of losing battles with micrometeorites and debris strikes over the years. and On the inside, Mir often surprised people, too, when they even thought they were ready for the view. By the time Americans arrived on Mir, nearly a decade into its life, the station had become cluttered with used up and broken equipment and floating bags of trash. During Mir's lifetime, no adequate remedy was ever developed to deal with the stowage situation. Mir looked like a metal rabbit warren, or as Mike Fowle put it, quote, a bit like a frat house, but more organized and better looked after, Mir had a well-learned reputation as a smelly, noisy place. It was no bigger than a few RVs stacked end-to-end, and dozens of stowaway microorganisms lurked on board, and Mir had developed the distinct aroma of sweaty men locked in a small house with cognac. The constant racket from fans and pumps and other machinery was enough to cause hearing loss. Still, Mir was home and sheltered to its crews, and how it looked to them depended on their perspectives and situations. The ivory-like controls of the base block reminded David Wolf of classic science fiction stories such as The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. After a fly-around in the Camp Soyuz capsule, Jerry Lanager wrote, quote, Looking into the station, I could see a lone ray of light shining through the port window and outlining the dining table. We had left some food out for dinner. It was the only time during my stay in space that Mir looked warm, inviting, and spacious. It reminded me of opening the door to a summer cottage that had been boarded up for the winter, looking inside and seeing familiar surroundings. Mir set every record in long-duration spaceflight. Physician Valery Polyakov lived abroad Mir for a single continuous orbit stay of 437 days, 17 hours and 38 minutes. He completed his stay in 1995 as American Norm Thagard began his Mir residency. Polyakov's experiences contributed greatly to the biomedical studies of long-term human spaceflight conducted by the Institute of Biomedical Problems, where he served as deputy director. Combined with an earlier Mir expedition flight, the Russian cosmonaut spent a total of 678 days, 16 hours and 33 minutes on the Russian space station. However, this achievement for total time in space was surpassed in 1999, intentionally, by the way, by Sergei Avdeyev, who endured a total of 747 days, 14 hours and 12 minutes during three space missions. During shuttle missions, Shannon Lucid set the space endurance record for women in 1996, when she spent 188 days or hours in orbit. Just as Mir, the word, has many meanings for Russians, Mir, the place, provoked many different feelings. In February 1995, Russian cosmonaut Vladimir Titov flew abroad near Mir in his STS 63 flight when the shuttle rendezvoused with Mir. Six years earlier, Titov had spent a year abroad Mir as an expedition member, when Mir consisted of only the base block, the two Kvant modules, a Soyuz and a Progress spacecraft. We will uh, talk about the modules and this progress and what constituted Mir a bit later, but we'll get to that, don't worry guys. Hey guys, Annette here! I hope you are enjoying our new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Cool fact! A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When seeing Mir again, Tito said, It was very wonderful, a wonderful view. STX-63 did not dock, but Tito visited Mir again as a crew member of STS-86. Alas, the sturdy Mir was built on the sinking foundation. Without repeated boostings, all things in low Earth orbit must eventually come down. With the new International Space Station requiring much, and I mean a lot, of the Russian space program's intention and financing, and let's not remember that Russia, well, basically defaulted and bankrupted itself in 1998, which caused... Well, a lot of issues, and even though they pride their Cosmos programs, yeah, everything got stolen there, and it really got into trouble. The Mir space station was doomed to be deorbited. A strong effort rallied in Russia to keep Mir aloft, and at one point, Russian State Duma representatives were calling for the firing of Yuri Koptev from his post as the head of Russia's aerospace agency. However, on December 30, 2000, the same year Putin came into power, Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Kasyanov sent a resolution calling for Mir to be sunk into the ocean early in 2001. Concerns circled the globe about Mir crashing into populated areas. Mir's path crossed over nearly every city on Earth. Its orbits tracked over everything between 51 degrees north and south latitude, roughly within the limits of the Aleutian Islands to the north and the southern Andes Mountains to the south. Pieces of previous large spacecraft had landed in Canada, Australia, and southern South America, albeit fortunately without any damages or casualties. For Mir, Russia acquired insurance in the event that its the orbit caused some physical damage. Japan kept a close watch because the final orbit would bring the Mir over the island nation. The United States government provided Russia with tracking and trajectory data, atmospheric conditions, and even solar activity, which can cause the Earth's atmosphere to expand farther into space. Although there was considerable certainty that debris could be limited to falling in the ocean, you know, it's still a Russian operation and it's a Soviet thing, so you never know, comrades. Anyway, Yuri Semyonov, the RSC Energia president, was quoted as saying, we don't have a 100% safety guarantee. After more than 86,000 total orbits, Mir re-entered Earth's atmosphere on Friday, March 23, 2001, at 9 a.m. Moscow time. The 134-ton space structure broke up over the southern Pacific Ocean. Some of its larger pieces blazed harmlessly into the sea about 1,800 miles east of New Zealand. Observers in Fiji reported spectacular gold and white streaming lights. An amazing saga and a highly successful program had come to a well, um, stuck into the deep end. And no, for you fans of South Park out there, it did not land in, well, South Park. Anatoly Solovyov had lived a total of 651 days of Mir and served as Mir 24 commander for Americans Mike Fole and David Wolf. He was quoted in Star City as saying, I am especially sad these days, an entire era of our Soviet space program is ending, into which we invested not only our money, but what's more important, our intellectual potential. The Russians' investment began when a Soviet proton launcher boosted Mir's base block core module into orbit on February 20th, 1986. Yes, the same year Chernobyl catastrophe happened. This module resembled the existing Salyut-7 space station, but Mir's design called for expansion through the addition of the future modules. Mir's first crew arrived in mid-March 1986, and the inaugural crew of Leonid Kizim and Vladimir Solovyov stayed abroad until May 5, 1986. This Solovyov would later become the Russian co-chair of the flight operations working group for the shuttle Mir program. And it was he who took charge of the Moscow Mission Control Center immediately after the Progress resupply vehicle collided with Mir during NASA-5 Mir astronaut Mike Foles' residency. In 1987, the Soviets added Mir's first expansion module, Quant-1, and had the world's first modular space station. They still needed a more versatile way of transporting crews and equipment to and from Mir, something like the American Space Shuttle, to be honest. In 1988, the Soviets launched the Buran, a winged, reusable space vehicle, and a close copy of the United States shuttle. Possibly the schematics were also stolen by the GRU, but that's a nice little conspiracy theory, which we are not going to get into this episode. Buran's first flight was near perfect. However, at this point in history, the Soviet Union was crumbling, as you might have heard in my previous episodes. No further Buran flights were attempted, four planned orbiters remained unfinished, and two of them were... Well, somewhat recently, in 2015, discovered to still be incomplete in the outskirts of the Cosmodrome of Baikonur. The Soyuz TM vehicle and Progress M resupply cargo vehicle became the transports of crews and supplies to the Mir station. The Quant-1 featured a docking port to accommodate the arrival of these spacecrafts. The system worked well, as the Russian space station was unoccupied for only five brief occasions until its de-orbit in March 23, 2001. During its existence, the station had remained almost continuously occupied for nine years. Mir continued to expand during the next years with the additions of modules for research and residence. QuanT 2 arrived in November 1989 with an airlock that allowed crew members access to the outside of the complex for extravehicular activities. Cristal, launched in May of 1990, housed Earth observation instruments and was later used for semiconductor and biological experiments. This is where the Mir got its, um, well, nice little smell here. Five years later, Spectre, a remote sensing module for geophysical sciences, was added to the Mir. On June 29, 1995, United States Space Shuttles began docking with the Russian space station. Before this first docking, the Mir 19 crew used the Lyapa manipulator arm to relocate the crystal, thus, allowing ample clearance for Atlantis. In November 1995, a new docking module arrived via STS-74 and was attached to the Kristall to provide means for future dockings without interference. The next year, on April 23, 1996, the final module, the Priroda, was added to the Mir. The complex remained and retained a docked Soyuz TM vehicle at all times as this spacecraft served as the crew's lifeboat. The vehicle carried a maximum of three people and could remain docked with the Mir for approximately 200 days before its orbital lifeline limit expired. The resident Soyuz was used for an occasional scheduled quote-unquote fly-around of the T-shaped Mir, but crews primarily ventured outside for EVAS, extracurricular activities, that's like when they did spacewalks. During Mir's lifetime, crew members spent more than 325 hours as part of the 75 planned spacewalks to conduct research and repairs on the exterior of the structure. Additional hours were spent during 3 intravehicular walks inside the unpressurized Specter module. Participants in the Mir EVAs included 29 Russian cosmonauts, 3 United States astronauts, 2 French astronauts, and 1 European Space Agency astronaut who was a citizen of Germany. Cosmonaut Anatoly Solovyov donned the Russian Orlan spacesuit for 16 spacewalks for a total time of 74 hours and 46 minutes, more EVA time than any other spacewalker in the world. True Belter, if I would say. After the Russian space station moved into its second decade, the Mir became notorious as an accident-prone spacecraft even as it remained unparalleled in continuous service. A 15-minute fire in an oxygen-generating device imperiled the station in February 1997. Failures of the electron electrolysis oxygen entering units and problems with attitude and environmental controls often seem to alternate with computer malfunctions and power outages, but what do you expect? It's a Soviet craft after all, comrades. The June 1987 collision with the Progress supply vehicle breached the integrity of the Spectre's hull and rendered that module uninhabitable. But Mir remained, and its space explorers endured. Over its lifetime, the space station hosted 125 cosmonauts and astronauts from 12 different nations. It supported 17 space expeditions, including 28 long-term crews. Its residents arrived via the 31 spacecraft that docked with Mir. Nine of the dockings involved the space shuttle. Additionally, 64 uncrewed cargo vessels ferried supplies and equipment periodically to Mir. And it served as a floating laboratory for... 23,000 scientific and medical experiments, by the way, out of which only about half were Soviet government approved. Although Mir was gone by the early 2001 and the ISS, International Space Station, was growing rapidly in orbit, the United States and Russia were still using spacecraft as statecraft. On March 23rd, the same day as Mir's the orbit, Russia expelled four United States diplomats and said it would expel 46 more in retaliation for the American expulsion of 50 Russian diplomats for espionage-like activities. It wasn't the Cold War all over again, but international tensions were certainly continuing, and the need remained for a worthy program for United States and Russian cooperation. One could still apply to the ISS the same hopes that the shuttle commander, Charlie Precourt, had held for it during the shuttle Mir. Precourt had predicated that the ISS would, quote, provide the psychological impetus for politicians to force themselves to find an agreement to disputes that otherwise they wouldn't. Because they'll all look up there and say, well, we have an investment in that too, we have to keep this relationship going in a proper direction, end quote. Although the United States and Russian relationship was still going in the, quote-unquote proper direction toward continued cooperation in space, the proper use and the funding of the ISS were still very much in question. NASA cost overruns for the ISS clouded the program's future, and Russia's foreign department was threatening to reduce its participation in the ISS. To make the situation even more complicated, the ISS partner nations were discussing whether Russia should launch a wealthy American quote-unquote space tourist to the space station. Notwithstanding all the diplomatic wrangling, Mir's demise also coincided neatly with the successful finish to the first United States-Russian expedition to the International Space Station. On March 22, 2001, Expedition 1 crew members Sergei Kredalev, Yuri Gidzenko and Commander William Shepard returned to the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And yes, the William Shepherd is also the guy, if you've played Mass Effect, after whom Commander Shepard was named after. They received a ride from STS-102 shuttle commander James Witherby and a crew that included former Mir resident Andy Thomas. STS-102 had ferried the Expedition 2 crew of James Voss, Susan Holmes and commander Yubli Usachev to the station. Just as the ISS grew out of the lessons of Mir, many of the principal people in the ISS program drew from their experiences doing the shuttle Mir program. And in Houston... As in Moscow, American and Russian managers, engineers and technicians who had worked in the shuttle Mir program were working to make the ISS a total success. The International Space Station was growing, but the memories of Mir refused to fade. Indeed, people had anticipated its demise for long enough that, even before it fell, it had entered nostalgia. In a 1998 interview, Vladimir Simchatkin reflected on Mir. He had developed the motion control systems and navigation systems for all vehicles and stations that were produced and launched into space by RSC Energia. Semyachkin, as much as anyone, had wrestled with mere problems. He said, quote, It's a shame. Our child, who we gave birth to so many years ago, we're going to have to put it to sleep. But on the other hand, we understand that sometimes there's nothing to be done. One cannot sit, as it were, on two chairs at the same time. Nevertheless, despite the sorrow with regard to Mir, we, nonetheless, look towards the future with a great deal of hope. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our co-hosts in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.